from Psalm 24, verses 1 through 8. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. God's glory personified and crowned as a king resides completely in the person of Jesus Christ. Through His work for us, Jesus will be crowned with eternal glory. His clean hands, His pure heart, the honesty and truthfulness and sincerity of His soul have given Him alone the glorious right to ascend God's holy hill of Zion as our King and our Savior, but only by way of His suffering. Chapter 11 of Mark begins the last third of Mark's Gospel, Mark is sometimes called a passion narrative with an extended introduction because um, the last few chapters describe just the last seven days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. This is the first uh, public or deliberate declaration by Jesus that he is the Messiah, fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9. He doesn't explicitly say it here. Mark doesn't tell us that that's what explicitly is happening, but by his deliberate move to fulfill the Zechariah text, we realize that Jesus is announcing that he is the king. The messianic secret we've seen all throughout the book of Mark is ending. The last days of earth are about to arrive in the suffering of Jesus. He finally entered Jerusalem on a donkey's colt where he was praised as the one who comes in the name of the Lord and brings the kingdom of David We live to glorify the King who was crucified for sinners, beloved. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, I ask for your mercy this morning. I ask to be filled with your Holy Spirit for the task of preaching your word from this text on this Sunday, this morning. Lord, be with me. Overcome me. Overcome my doubts and my pride and those things that would cause me to preach for myself. God, I ask that your son would be proclaimed through my mouth by the power of your spirit and that you would open every ear in this place to understand and every heart to adore the glorious reigning Christ who was slain for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We read the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus and his disciples, if you remember, are traveling west from Jericho to Jerusalem. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem proper. It's on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. This is the hometown of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Jesus probably stayed with them while visiting Jerusalem and would get up in the morning and go into the city and then at night come out and go back to Bethany as verse 11 implies. But the Mount of Olives was directly east of Jerusalem. It's about 2,600 feet above sea level. It overlooks the Temple Mount Zechariah 14, verse 4, the Old Testament prophet, identifies the Mount of Olives as the place where the Lord will stand on the day of judgment, which makes it very significant that Jesus will approach Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives as the king in fulfillment of another text in Zechariah we alluded to earlier, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout Daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus Christ is about to accomplish. Prior to his entry, he tells two unnamed disciples to go get the animal on which he's going to ride into the city, a young donkey, one on which no one has ever sat. The implication is that it's a pure donkey. It's been set apart or reserved. No one has tainted it yet. In the Old Testament, though, animals that had never been yoked were the ones used for sacrifices. They were the ones used for pulling the Ark of the Covenant, the holy things. There's even a a collection of Jewish oral traditions called the Mishnah. And in that, it says the king's horse, when the king comes, as prophesied in Zechariah, cannot be ridden by anyone except the king. Jesus is aware of all of these things, but it isn't a horse per se, is it? It's a young donkey. Just picture that in your mind, not to be sacrilegious. But there's nothing immediately glorious about a grown man riding on a little donkey. That's going to look silly coming down a hill, especially the faster it goes. But there is scripture to fulfill. There's peace to proclaim to the nations. So the mount the king takes fits the king's purpose, doesn't it? His first coming was to save, not to condemn, to bring peace to the weary soul. There's no war horse needed this time. This time he comes On a donkey. A donkey implies that Jesus means to do exactly what he said the Son of Man came to do. A donkey implies he's come to serve, not to be served. A theology of the cross, remember, seeks no earthly glory. The king does not need to be coronated like earthly 
kings. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, remember, in Psalm 24, including donkeys, including people's property. There is... Uh, there are royal implications here. There was an ancient custom called agaria where a king could claim temporary rights over your property like eminent domain. But, you know, exponentially, if he wanted to take anything you had and use it for whatever purpose he wanted it. But verse three at least implies we don't know for sure, but it implies there's been some kind of prearrangement with the owner, which just would again show the utter humility of Jesus to ask a favor from someone else. And he tells them, if you're challenged in this, I want you to indicate, possibly this is what he's saying, that this is the favor the Lord had previously arranged. That would explain or help explain why he's so quickly accommodated without any real objection. It could also mean that Jesus just had divine insight, knew this would be given. We can't say for sure. But what he what is amazing here is notice what he says. He'll bring it back immediately. That is amazing. Beloved, this is Jesus. This is the King, the Messiah, the Creator of the world, and He will not use those who serve Him. So, I'll bring it back. I'm going to use it for a while. while. I'll bring it back as soon as I'm done. As soon as I'm done. He hasn't come to take, has He? He's come to give. Even His coronation makes this clear, if we could call it that. So, in verses 4 through 6, the events unfold as described, showing us that Jesus is in complete control over everything that's happening here, including this moment. In verses 7 through 8, we realize again the donkey's never been ridden before, so there's no saddle for it, there's no yoke for it. So the disciples make a saddle, so to speak, with their cloaks. Nowhere else in the Gospels, not one time is it recorded for us that Jesus rides on an animal. This is the only time. This is very deliberate. Pilgrims, when they came into the city for the festivals, they didn't ride on animals. They walked. That was part of the pilgrimage to the city. This event is special. Something is happening here. Jesus means to make something very clear by riding on the foal of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. He wants to fulfill Zechariah 9.9 as the Messiah. He wants it clear. This is who I claim to be. This is who I am. And I'm coming in to the holy city. Branches and garments are spread to prepare a road for him, kind of like a, a red carpet, if you will, for the king. Branches here refers to really any leafy stalk of any kind or tall grass cut from nearby fields. We get from John that these were palm branches. Otherwise, we wouldn't Know that, but it doesn't look like it's connected with the festival. It looks like this is a spontaneous act to honor Jesus as he's coming down the Mount of Olives. Songs and celebrating characterize all of the pilgrim festivals. Festivals. This seems spontaneous. It's very reminiscent of Solomon's um, entrance on David's mule to music and to rejoicing. It reminds us of the anointing of King Jehu. As the king of Israel, as Elijah command, when people spread garments under his feet, right? It obviously reminds us of Zechariah 9, verse 9, and the Messiah coming. There's even an extra biblical source that uh, refers to these things in 1 Maccabees, the story of Simon Maccabeus coming into Jerusalem, and there, the people were waving palm branches, and there, were, uh, there was music and praise for him. In other words, the image is set, this is a king. And the people see him, As a king, at least this crowd, whatever size it was, gathered as Jesus comes in on the donkey. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. 
And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Lord, save us now. That's what that word means. Lord, save us now. The crucified king is the one who will sit on David's throne. The savior, the triumphal entry of King Jesus. That's what we call this. It began at Bethany, this little village on the top of the Mount of Olives. It looks out across the Kidron Valley, 300 feet below, on out to the city of Jerusalem. In 586 B.C., when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, remember, the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision by God in Ezekiel 11, verse 23, in which he saw the glory of God rise up from the temple in Jerusalem, where it departed from the east side of the city and ascended 300 feet to rest on the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, Jesus has been headed towards Jerusalem for almost the entire book of Mark, and he's finally here. Verse 11 feels, on a first reading, extremely anticlimactic, doesn't it? I'm here. Looks around. All right, let's go back to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. But remember where Jesus was. Remember the prophecy. Remember the word of God. He had set his face to go to Jerusalem, as Isaiah 50, verse 7 prophesied, knowing he would suffer and die there. That's what Jesus knows he has come to Jerusalem to do. So where does he go? The city itself is not his ultimate destination. It's the temple. When he went into Jerusalem and then to the temple, he looked around at what? What's in the temple? The place where the sacrifices were made. Jesus is thinking. He knew why he had come to Jerusalem. But first, the first thing he does is go to the temple. Here is the true beauty and significance of verse 11, beloved. In 586 B.C., the glory of God left the temple. But in Mark 11, when Jesus entered, the glory of God returned to the temple. Before what? Before he went back up again to Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives. Nobody realized it, but the King of glory was in their midst. The glory of God returned to the temple, rested there, looked around, went back up, leaving the temple on the east side to rest and sleep for the night on the Mount of Olives. He is about to meet the destiny for which he was called and for which he was born, beloved, to be crucified for sinners. We live now. We live to glorify the king who was crucified for sinners. We cannot Forget that this is what our King has done. We glorify Him specifically, beloved, by receiving and proclaiming His lowly service to us. To repent of our sins, to run to Jesus for salvation, is to give God the highest glory. That's the purest worship we can offer. To glorify God is to live at the foot of the cross with our eye on the empty tomb. We glorify God most perfectly 
most completely when we are resting in His Son and the work He accomplished for us and when what we proclaim is the glory of His death and resurrection for us. The glory of God is wrapped up in the suffering of Jesus. There is no glorifying God in us apart from the cross. We can't move from it. We can't separate from it. We can't move on to more triumphant, victorious things. This is why we live, as we spoke two weeks ago, by a theology of the cross. The cross is the means by which God has chosen to be perfectly glorified. We either define our lives by what we do, or we define our lives by what He has done. And that choice determines whether or not we will give God glory, or to whom we'll give glory at all. Living the Christian life for ourselves and for our own glory is at its essence a move away from the necessity of the cross. It is a slight to the service of Jesus to us. God linked His glory in creation to the life and death and resurrection of His Son for those who did not deserve it. God's glory is the overflow of God's grace more than anything else in creation. The crucified King, a King who was crucified, is the King of glory. Who is this King of glory? The psalmist asked, the one who is mighty in battle to defeat the curse of sin and death, mainly. This is the true enemy of humankind, the one who is sufficient in suffering to bear the wrath of God for all who believe on Him. The one who, though He is a lion, became the lamb that was slain for us, lowly and riding on a donkey. There is one thing, one thing to cry out if we truly want to glorify God. Hosanna! Lord, save us now. The one who comes in the name of the Lord, bearing the gift of salvation, save us. Save us. Jesus is a king. To follow him is not to simply associate ourselves with him. Right? It's not just to pull him into our identity. It's to live in deliberate allegiance to him as the kind of king he came to be for us. We are not a triumphalistic people. It's not over yet. The next time he comes, he will be on a horse to make war. That's yet in the future, beloved. Maybe the very soon future, but it's still in the future. This first coming, he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. So we do not take on ourselves the ministry of condemnation, but the ministry of salvation. Often we think of what Jesus can do for us, right? To make our lives better in this world, mainly. There's one sense in which it's very good to be fixated on what Jesus has done for us. But in another sense, if the point of that is to make our lives better in this world, make us triumphant and all of those things in this world, in Colossians 1.13 we find that our lives belong to the one who rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Right now, what does that kingdom look like? And do we as Christians represent that kingdom or do we represent something else? How did the king of this kingdom first come? To be a believer is not simply to latch on to a system of beliefs. Beloved, it's a transfer of allegiance. To follow Jesus is a transfer of allegiance. It's to be born again. 
It's to live our lives now for a completely different goal and reason. And a king who came riding on a donkey is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Do we realize the mistake that we're making spiritually when we undertake to provide for God as though he needs us to the point if we don't do something, he's lacking something he would have liked to have had. Think about how that changes our hearts and keeps us from being able to love and serve one another, much less our enemies and our neighbors. That's not how Jesus is served. This king is not served like other kings. He's not served as though he lacks something that we can provide for him. Jesus has provided everything we need. Right? So serving him is not providing for him what he still lacks. Right? This is going to sound very cold. I don't mean it to, but none of us are that, is that important. Right? That, that if I don't do blank, right? That's, that's, that's living like there's something that still needs to be provided. That's not what Christian service is. It's not that there's no Christian service or good works. Of course there are. But not like God needs us. Right? That, that calls for a completely different kind of motivation, doesn't it? That, that kind of thinking enables the manipulation of those that teach the word to you. I'll just make you feel guilty for not doing enough, not being committed enough. And so I'll constantly preach this message of rededication, right? You don't go in and out of Jesus, beloved. You don't go in and out of the kingdom. If our hearts are fixated on the king who came riding on a donkey for us, to serve us, to die for us, to rise for us, to ascend for us, who now intercedes for us, serving becomes, serving becomes the giving of Christ to others rather than the accomplishment or filling out of my personal salvation. Jesus on the donkey shows us the posture with which we may go to the world, to those he means to save. How did Jesus come into the city to give his life? He came lowly, riding on a donkey, to end war, to put peace at the front of everything for the nations. We don't come with a sword to conquer, do we? We come on a cross to die so that what Jesus did for others, who he is for them, is precisely what is seen in our service of them. Christian service is the proclamation of the gospel. We like to talk about, or sometimes it's talked about as you want to live out the gospel. You, you can't live out the gospel, right? We, we, we can, however, live out the person of Jesus to us. This is how Paul talks. Right? That he was filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Paul is not being a heretic. He doesn't mean the sacrifice of Jesus was insufficient to save. Paul means that the suffering of Jesus in some sense requires a personal presentation to those for whom he died. We need to proclaim with our mouth the crucifixion of Jesus. We also need to proclaim his suffering with our lives. With our lives. Therefore, we come as servants 
to those who hate us and would spit in our face and beat on us and will kill us when they're able to, as they are in many places around the world as we speak today. We're trying to win, aren't we? We're trying to take over so that they don't take over. Beloved, we don't take over. This world has already been overcome. We're not doing that. That's not what Christian service is. The ship is sinking. We're swimming around trying to save people. That's it. And all the good things and kind things that flow out of that towards people. We aren't trying to win. Jesus won. It's finished. Right? We, we, we don't need... I'm, I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself because this is a lot of the church in Smyrna tonight. But we, beloved, we, we don't need to win. We don't need to win. We need to serve others with this truth. This world is going down. Nothing you and I do is going to change that. We aren't going to push humanity into a place where God is not going to judge it. Right? It, it, that's happening. Everything that's promised in the end is going to happen because wickedness will abound. That doesn't mean God is lost. It means it's going according to plan. Right now, we're trying to get people out of wrath. And what does that? Jesus, lowly riding on a donkey to proclaim peace to the nations before the last war, beloved. This is amnesty for rebels. That's what the gospel is. Amnesty for rebels, which we once were. And we were saved by God's grace. We we have an obligation, Paul says in Romans 1, to the unsaved. We can't distance ourselves from them to the point where they're the enemies and we have to conquer them or we won't survive. The church will always survive. It will all, we're not going to lose. We're not going to lose because our king is already won. It's his territory. Easter Sunday morning was also the king walking out of the tomb with a flag and shoving it in the ground and saying, mine, now go get my sheep because I'm coming back. Jesus won't be seen if we seek political or national glory. He won't be seen in that. He didn't come like that. He didn't come seeking that. He didn't come needing that or relying on it, did he? That, that's not the gospel. That doesn't proclaim suffering. That doesn't proclaim dying to this world. We, we don't need this world to approve of us or accept us. We don't need anything from it. It's dying. We can't stop that. Service is not providing something that isn't there. Service is proclaiming the means of rescue. However that comes out, we are in that sense the hands and feet of Christ to one another when we serve one another and are kind to one another. Right? You, you, your gift to me, to Reverend Steele this morning, to Jacob, to Pastor Ron, those are, those are gifts of Christ to us. We feel Christ in you when you give to us like that. You don't have to do that. Right. And you do that. These, this why? Because Christ has given to us. I'm just it's like I get a million dollars and I spend it on others. You know how much fun it is to buy Christmas presents. Remember when you were a kid, you don't want to buy. you wanted everything. You, you didn't want to buy anything. You wanted everything. Right. You, you, you the, the joy was getting because you were a child. It's better to give than to receive. God wrote that. You think he doesn't know that? Right? You know the joy. That's the funnest thing in the world. I, I, that little weird space that you have in your life between like 18 and 30, maybe, I don't know, or 18 until you get married, where Christmas just really stinks because your parents don't care anymore. Right? So you get like a book. 
or something. One year I got a box of stationery <laughs> with baseballs on it because my mom worked at Hallmark. Like, mom, I, I'm not a huge baseball guy and I don't write a lot of people. But, and I, I'm not, my mom would beat me senseless if you knew I just told you that story. But you know what I mean, that weird space. When you have kids again, and you, you get like seeing them, oh, it's way better than opening presents, way better. Like just to see them smile, to see them, beloved, that's all this is, just give it away. Right? That's, that's all we're doing. When, when you see the people that are so lost and so far from God, do you know what you have for them? It doesn't matter who you are, how much money you have, how cool you were in height. None of that matters. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. You have this in you. Just give it away. That's serving, beloved. That's, that's denying ourselves because we want to keep as humans. This king came on a donkey. I, I haven't come to destroy you. I, I've, I've come to save you because I'm coming later on a horse. And there will be no doubt. There will be no question. You'll be screaming and crying for the rocks to fall on you when you see me coming in the clouds of glory on a white horse. My name on my thigh. Right? A sword. My word coming out of my mouth. You won't want me then. Take me now. Right? Beloved, we have this. We know that's coming. It's easy to hate unbelievers and wicked people. I get it. It's, it's, but look, we don't want that to happen to anybody. So while we're here, just, just give it away. Just give, just tell people you, he won't be seen. Jesus won't be seen in the way that he came by our triumphalism, right? He won't be seen if we believe our standing with him as his servant comes from the quality of our service. That'll change our whole demeanor towards others and towards our neighbors and our enemies. This kingdom doesn't call for accomplishment and achievement. This kingdom calls for repentance of our sins every day. This kingdom calls for humility, calls for service to others that does not seek glory or recognition or even power, but instead desires that all glory goes to God. This is why we must learn to ride on donkeys instead of horses. If His glory is most clearly seen in the death and resurrection of His Son, then it is the death and resurrection of Jesus we must proclaim if we would truly glorify Him. Don't use the call to glorify God as a backdoor way to glorify yourself, right? For that, we need fixated on the Gospel, the content of which is Christ. This is what saves. Beloved, we are not above our Master. Remember Jesus saying that? We are not above our Master. So technically, I wasn't correct earlier when I said we need to learn to ride on donkeys. We would need to get lower than a donkey's colt. Right? And here's the thing this morning. We don't have the strength, the will, or the desire, much less the ability to get that low. Nobody. Nobody. But He came to serve us in our lack. 
He came to serve us in what we have done that merits His wrath, beloved. He's come to fill in all the gaps, all the holes. He's come to overcome our weaknesses and inabilities with a message. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the ability to proclaim the message. One is not above another. The, the, the contest is to get low, right? Jesus doesn't call us to become something nearly as much as he's calling us to receive what he has done. Our lives are not meant to be defined by our work. They're meant to be defined by his beloved. As the beneficiaries of grace, then, we assume the posture of a servant, of a receiver. That's how we're meant to come off. Jesus reaching down to us from the back of a donkey's colt. Jesus on a donkey is Jesus saying, I'll get low enough to reach you. I'll get low enough to reach you. I'll take your hand and I'll pull you up. That's who we are. We've been pulled up. We've not been recognized. We've been rescued. We've been pulled up off the ground, out of the grave. And from that place, from that place, the ground, the grave, we are fit to make him known to the world. We're fit to make him or or to love and to serve one another. And we, we can't be anything like Jesus until we take on his posture towards the world. So let us receive from Him all His grace. Beloved, all of it. Let it wash over you every day in waves. It is yours. You are free. You are safe. You can love and lose and lose nothing. You can serve and give everything and lose nothing. This is all passing away. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. It's all taken care of. The food is all prepared. Sit and eat. The bread and the wine have been provided. And serve the world. You'll lose nothing. We'll lose nothing. We don't need to win. Please remember that. We're Americans, right? I'm an American. We win. Not in this kingdom. Not here. But we don't need to. We don't need to. Let him have all the glory. And you and I will just take all the salvation. Then, beloved, then, from this church, Christ will be proclaimed. For this town, this valley, the people across 4th, the people across Annadale, up 7th, right? I know street names now, right? Oh, beloved, listen, we, we, we have the greatest thing on the planet. The greatest thing on the planet. I know, trust me, I know it's a bummer when as many people as we're aren't showing up. You wonder when you're a pastor, like, you know, is it, is it me? Is it, is it this? Is it that? I, I, I don't know. I just know that, like, we aren't going to lose anything. Right? Who knows what God needs to do here before the end? Look, maybe that's all. Maybe God's design is that COVID clear the way for salvation, right? I, I don't, I don't know. That would be very wonderful, and I think that everything that's going on in the world is for the purpose of 
God to save people. So rest. He's the King of glory. And He's your King. Your salvation is settled. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's written in blood. It's written in stone. Nothing can undo it. Let's serve the world, even our enemies. Starting right here in Moundsville. Starting right here with one another. Bob is right. The people in our church hurting. We have it all. We can give it all away. 